Hey, y'all, it's great to be with you here this morning. Um, so just by way of starting, um, Orphan Sunday started about 15 years ago in a place called Kalingalinga, Zambia. A pastor by the name of Billy Chandwe is, uh, was serving in a church in Kalingalinga in, in the midst, really kind of at the height of the AIDS crisis. And their community was just overwhelmed with children whose parents had, had died as a result of AIDS and kids that were, that were suffering around their community. And so Pastor Billy just was overwhelmed with the, with the things that were happening in Kalingalinga, but he was, he was also burdened that as he began to, to really consider in God's word, what was the church's role in that, that he, he began to be convicted that the church's role was central to that. And as he studied God's word and he understood more of God's heart for the orphan and as he connected the, the need for, for churches who bear the gospel to intervene in the lives of vulnerable children in their community, he began to be, to be greatly burdened that they needed to do something. And so on a particular Sunday, he told his congregation who were um, some of the poorest of the poor in Zambia, we're going, to, we're going to cry out to the Father and, and we're, going to, we're, going to, we're going to consider what it is that God has to say about, about orphan and vulnerable children, how we as the church have responsibility under the authority of the gospel to, to, to minister to them and, and then we're going to, we're going to ask God to, to, to do something to help us to help. And so what they ended up doing is they had a worship service and, and, they, and they prayed and they read scripture and they studied and, and, and the, the Holy Spirit just was, was present and, and evident to them in ways. God just began to move in the service. And so part of what they did fairly extemporaneously in the service is they went and got a big basket and they put it down in front of the altar and Pastor Billy began to call on his congregation to give what they could give in order for them to serve the orphans that are in their community. And the reports from that Sunday are things like this. There was a, there was a man who took off his shoes, his only pair of shoes. He took them off and he came by and he put them in the basket. There was a, there was a lady who was a widow in their church that, that went back to her house. She left the church. She went back. She went into her cupboard. She got a cabbage and, and, and a few things, really the last things that she had to eat in her home and and she came and she brought them and she put them in the basket and and what happened that day was ultimately transformative to the community of Kalingalinga because God God did something among his people and people gave they gave deeply they gave what they had sometimes they gave what they really didn't have in order to be able to care for orphans but God began to do something in Kalingalinga that was that was remarkable not only did the church begin to look outwardly about caring for orphans in their community, not only did they, not only did they have a, an awareness for, for vulnerable children who didn't have a voice, who couldn't care for themselves, who were in a hopeless condition, but they also, they also began to find ways to, to tell people about Jesus and to influence their community for Christ in ways that they'd never, never imagined that they could. 
And so this little bitty church that was in the middle of this community that was struggling to have a voice to be able to reach out to people who were, uh, who were enslaved in animism and Islam and, and, and all kinds of false belief systems and, and people that were dying apart from Christ, maybe the greatest thing that happened in that community is that the community awakened to their need for Jesus and ultimately to Christ's ability to rescue them because the church cared for orphans. So here's the punchline this morning. One of the things God's privileged me to be able to do over the last 15 years is to be a part of the orphan care community and to travel around and to get to meet a lot of people. And Pastor Billy's become one of my dearest friends. And so this week, we talked about the fact that I was going to be at First City Church and, and he's uh, you know, he's still eminently involved in the things that, that CAFO and others do for Orphan Sunday. And so I want you guys to know that Pastor Billy prayed for you guys this morning. And part of our conversation was that, that God would have the same kind of impact on First City Church and that God would have the same kind of impact on, on this community in Pensacola that, that he did in Kalingalinga. Because at the end of the day, this is not about a celebration or a commemoration. It's not, it's not about something for us to come and have a pep rally and to feel good about ourselves or even feel good about what it is that God's called us to do. The, the, the motivation for a Sunday like this is for us to, to have a pep rally so that we can, so that we can go out and take the field and, and do something ultimately for Christ. And so that's kind of what we're going to dive into this morning. If you have a Bible... You can turn with me, or smartphone, or e-device, or whatever, right? Um, let's go to James chapter 1. Um, first thing I want, just kind of want you guys to know, just by, by way of introduction, you know, you have a guy who comes in, by the way, Taryn, thank you, but man, like, that video is only like two years ago, and I look at how much gray I've gained in just <laughs> the course of, of a couple of years, and it's like COVID's been hard, y'all. The struggle is real. But anyway, we, this, this morning, I, I just, you know, I show up, we, you have an expectation because I come from a ministry like Lifeline that's dedicated to the gospel, dedicated to the local church, and ultimately dedicated to, to orphan and vulnerable children for us to, to be able to, to care for them and to mobilize the church to care for them in, in ways that, that manifest the gospel. And so the expectation is that that, that this, is, like, this is what we should focus our time on, right? And, that, and that, that I'm the guy that professionally is supposed to get up here and to tell you all the things that you should be doing in order to care for orphans in your community and that this should be kind of one of those heart-tugging kind of speeches and that sort of thing, but, that, but here's what I want to confess to you. If I go back 15, 17 years in the rearview mirror the reality of, of who, who I was at that time was I was a seminary professor who had more degrees than a thermometer and could, could exegete the scriptures in, in ways that, um, you know, that anybody with that kind of resume should who just didn't get it. About 17 years ago, I was sitting at our dinner table one night and, and my wife after a really intense season of prayer where she was seeking the Lord about, about what, was, what was next and what God had for our family, 
my wife just very casually over the dinner table, but, but not casually because it was planned because she'd been praying about it for a long time. <laughs> she just said to me very casually over dinner, you know, I've really been praying about this, and I think, I think, God, would, I think God would have us to adopt. And I remember as clear as day sitting in our, at our dining room table in Louisville, Kentucky, where I was teaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I, I, like, I remember sitting there, and I don't think I even put my fork down. I just said to her, no. Because I'm thinking in my mind, like, I've seen Dateline. Like, I know, like, I know, like, I know the tough stories. I know, like, I, I like, mm-mm. Wow, that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. That sounds tough. That, that doesn't really sound like something that, that I really feel called to do. And, and so my wife, as she's wont to do, and, and something that I figured, figured out about her is that she does not play fair. <laughs> because playing fair would be that she would, like, put pictures of orphan children around her house and stick Bible verses up and try to be incredibly manipulative in, in, because that, like, that can be ignored. But what she did, instead of doing that, she did in my mind, which was something that was like tantamount to cheating, she prayed. And her prayer went something like this, God, if you have put this on my heart, then you can accomplish it, and I trust you. And so, Lord, either accomplish it or take it away from me, but God, I'm confident that you can, you can steer the heart of my knucklehead husband. And so, and so God, I trust him to you, and, and you do business with him, and, the, and God, you show me which direction you would have me to go. Y'all, that was awful. I mean, like Charles Spurgeon talks about this idea of being pursued by the hounds of heaven. He talks about the, like the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, my word. Like God, like there was... God pursued me in ways that I cannot begin to describe to you today on the journey to get to where, where I find myself today. And, and ultimately, one of the questions that, that just rang out in my heart and rang out in my mind through this, I'm a nerd, I admit it, like I, I, I overthink things. And, and so one of the things that was, that was kind of a point of, of real fixation is that I did not doubt for the world that caring for orphan and vulnerable children is important. I did not doubt for the world that it was something that, that we were to do as God's people. I had been on mission trips where I had served orphans in the U.S. and around the world. I gave to offerings and, and, and did things, but, but the fact was that, that I did all of those things without a ready recognition of what God was really up to when he was calling us out to care for orphan and vulnerable children. And, and the, the end of this story is not to tell you that your, your call is to adopt or your call is to foster it's not to shape what your calling is and what the end of that journey looks like for you but it is to tell you that the thing that I found along the way is that God has incredible intentionality and incredible gospel purpose in us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ caring for orphan and vulnerable children in our community and when we do that, we do something, we show something to the world that they have no other way of seeing about God because we become active in caring for orphan and vulnerable children in our community. And that our responsibility is not merely to, to fulfill an obligation or to, or to address and do something that's a part of a checklist of things that God would have us to do in our community to, to be obedient, but it's to do something incredibly special 
something incredibly different, something incredibly remarkable that reflects the heart of God so that we're able to testify to people about the, the ultimately the redeeming and transforming, transforming power of Jesus. And so if you made your way to James 1, some of you guys thought I was never going to get back there. Let's start in verse, 20, verse 25 of chapter 1. And our brother James writes this. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, you know if, if, you've, if you've spent much time in, in the, the book of James, in, the, in the, the letter that James wrote to the church, that, that part of what James is saying in the, in, in the verses that precede this is he's talking about kind of this, this tension between faith and works. He's talking about, you know, about our, our belief and our trust in God and, and our, our, our placing our faith and trust in God and how that works with the expectation that we will be obedient and do those things that God has called us to do. And so he's wrestling in the middle of that and he's wrestling in the middle of a, of a group of people that are quite often honestly an, asking the question of like what is it that really saves us what is it that ultimately rescues us what is it that ultimately um, helps us to, to be delivered from our sins and and ultimately transforms us and, and adopts us into the family of God and so in the middle of that tension James is, is kind of stepping, and he's talked about this idea that, that those that, that rely on faith only, that, are, that only have a head knowledge of God, those that, those that, that, that profess a, a trust but, but don't have a life that really looks like that they've been transformed, that ultimately, he says, that's like a man who looks in a mirror, right? That was me just a few minutes ago looking at that video. Like, I used to look like that guy, but the guy that I got up and didn't shave this morning looks a whole lot different. He's a whole lot you know, more gray and a little more haggard looking. But ultimately, that, that, we, that we look at our reflection, and most of us don't remember what we look like a few minutes later, what he's saying is that, that if, if we don't have the kind of faith, if we don't have the, the, the kind of trust in God, and we don't have the kind of walk with the Lord that leads us into doing things that ultimately are obedient and ultimately put Christ on display in our communities, if we're not allowing the outworking of our faith to happen, then ultimately he's saying that our, our religion is of, is of very little good. And so here's the first thing I would, I would propose to you this morning, and it's really simple, that our, that our care for orphans ultimately has to be rooted in the gospel. So one of the things that James says right here in verse 25, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres. What is the perfect law of liberty? It's the gospel. It's the story that you and I did not possess when, uh, within us the ability to be able to solve our own sin problem. That you and I were, were in need of the, the transforming and the adopting grace of Jesus and we were in need of the work of Jesus in order for us to become anything other than irrevocably broken and, and an enemy of God. And the fact that we've experienced the miracle of being adopted into God's family 
means that as we step out to, 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 to minister to orphan and vulnerable children in our family, that the most, in our community, that the most profound thing that we have to give is the truth of who Jesus is and the work that he's done and the hope that comes in the transformation of, from Christ. Walking in the world that we live in today, one of the great dangers of the church is to buy into the idea that somehow we have to take our faith and we have to take who we know Jesus to be and to put it on the shelf and to kind of scoot it over to the side in order for us to cooperate to see big things happen in our community. And so all the time, there are opportunities for us to get involved in things like caring for vulnerable children through foster care in our community. And the pull is, hey, if you guys will just kind of back off on all that Jesus talk and, and you just will find out a way to cooperate with all the people that are in our, in, in our community, like we can do so many bigger, so, so many greater and bigger things because we all can agree about that agenda. And y'all, I just want to stand up here and tell you from, from the very outset that as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the real valuable thing that we have to bring to the fight to care for orphan and vulnerable children in our, in our community, is it's not our money, it's not our effort, it, it's, not, it's not all the things and all the good works that we can bring to the table, it's Jesus. And that we've got to keep our, our eye on the ball that, that we are the people that have the missing ingredient that's causing the system to fail. You heard earlier in the video talking about Families Count. We're going to talk about that a, a little bit more here in a few minutes. But one of the things that we learned along the way in building Families Count and in partnering with government is that in this area of parenting education, trying to help foster family, or families that have lost their children into care or are at risk to lose their children into care, to help them to, to take parenting classes so that they can be um, reconciled to their children and their families can be put back together, that's a step that's, that's always there in the system. But one of the things that we learned along the way is that in every state in the union, while that is a requirement of the system, it's something that nobody in the system actually believes will work. And so here's the score. So families go and, and they go before a judge. One of the things that they're going to be sentenced to have to do is to take a parenting class. And it's because it makes logical sense, right? Part of what you assume is that people who are failing at being a family and people that are failing in parenting, that the problem is they don't know how to parent. So we're going to teach them. But as you heard the statistics on the video, that idea is an abject failure in the middle of a system that's struggling to do well to provide for families and to provide for children. And so we look sometimes into the brokenness of the foster care system and, and, we, and we, can, we can talk about all the ways that government is failing and we can talk about all the ways that nonprofits are failing and we can talk about all the ways that all the people that are trying to help and all the systems that have been created are failing. But ultimately, here's the, here's the reality. Or maybe here's the question we ask about that reality. Is the reason that the system is failing, is it largely because the system doesn't have the power to transform anybody's life? And that what the system is doing is perpetuating spending resources and spending effort and reaching into the lives of families in order to see transformation, but they're fighting a hopeless battle because at the end of the day, the system doesn't bear a message and doesn't have anything that will ultimately provide for the transformation of the person.
And so many times what's happening is resources and time and effort and all those things are being, are being sent and, 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 and being pushed, but they're being pushed toward people and they're rolling off like water off a duck's back because at the end of the day, those things are being applied to lives that are untransformed. And what you and I know is the only hope to transform someone is not through, it's not through education, it's not through a social program, it's not through financial assistance. All of those things have their place, but to truly transform someone, there is only one hope, and his name is Jesus. And so as we look into James, one, James chapter 1, and, and particularly as we focus on verse 27, and we, we talk about this idea of our responsibility to care for orphan and vulnerable children, something we have to understand and, and that we can never lose sight of is the fact that as we do that, we cannot be, we cannot be moved. That those things that we do, we must do in the name of Jesus and ultimately do for his sake and to do for his glory. So here's the second thing I think we learn out of James chapter 1. Really simple. Look, you guys are looking at me, and some of you are going, okay, like I'm waiting for the real profound thing that he's going to say. Well, it's not going to happen this morning, right? Because <laughs> really, this is, kinda, this is pretty simple. And this is kind of like finding the big E on the eye chart. That, that, that what we're seeing here is, is that what God has called us out to do in caring for vulnerable children and caring for vulnerable people in our community, this whole thing about like caring for widows and orphans and sojourners that we see that, that flows through all of the Old Testament, that is a really very simple equation of what it is that God is hoping for us to understand about what our role is as his people. And so the second thing that we see is in verse 27... He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And here's what I take from that verse. And you're going to hear me say this, and you're going to go, well, wait a minute, I don't see that in this verse. And what I see in James 1.27 is that everybody has a role in the church ministering to vulnerable children. Everybody, everybody. That it's completely universal. You say, okay, well, Mr. Smart Bible Man, like I read that and I don't see where that's telling me that this is universal. Well, here, let me break it down for you. So imagine next Sunday, you as a church just kind of continue on with, with this thread and you pick this sermon up right here in James 1.27 and Taryn is standing right here where I'm standing today doing a much better job of preaching than I'm doing today. And, and, he, and he gets up and he tells you guys, like, we've been praying as church leadership, and, and, and we've got an idea. And so here's, here's the pitch. Like, all that stuff about personal holiness and, and like, striving to, to be like Jesus and conforming ourselves to the image of Christ and, and the transformation that comes through the gospel, like, we've really, like, we've been praying about this and we've been thinking about it, and, you know, like, that's hard. And ultimately, we've kind of come to the conclusion that it's so hard that really, you know, like they're just, they're kind of just a few people that are called to be holy. Like everybody, everybody, there's free grace and, and, and like there's room at the cross and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, all this stuff about living like Jesus, like they're really, you know, like everybody just didn't call to that. And so here's what we're going to do. First City Church is going to start a personal holiness team. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to do some spiritual giftedness inventories, and, and we're going to find, like, we're going to find out, like, who those people out there that, that are really called to holiness. And what we're going to do is we're going to put them in a team, and we're going to give them the responsibility to be holy for all the rest of us. And so the good news is that we're going to take the people that are really passionate about holiness and we're going to kind of give them everything that they need so that they can pursue holiness. But for the rest of us, we're not called to that and so we don't have to worry about it. But great news as a church, we're checking that box. Like you guys would think the cheese has slid off the cracker, right? Like, I mean, people would be whispering, going like, get him down before he says something else crazy. He's embarrassing himself. This isn't on live stream, is it? <laughs> well, like, why? But why? Because, because you all know, like, it's self-evident that holiness is part of the deal, that part of what we're being transformed to is, is, is into the likeness of Jesus, that we're in, the, we're in the walk of sanctification, that part of us walking with Jesus is not just that we're changed in our, in our destination, but we're changed in our character, and that day by day Christ is working through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, for us to be transformed into the image of the Son. And that as we walk in holiness, we are giving the world a testimony of who God is, and we're living in such a way that we're bringing glory to Christ because of what he's been able to do. So why in the world would James, on one half of the verse, give you that sort of thunderclap to say the two things about pure religion that I can say for sure is that one of them is keep yourself unstained from the world. We all get that, and that's all of our responsibility. And the other part is visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And yet, in the church, we've sort of grown this mindset to say that, that, that really caring for vulnerable children is just something that a few people do. Like, if you're really called out to do foster care, if you're really called out to adopt, then that's, that's kind of your business. And, 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 and like, we'll, like we, we're okay with you, with you doing that, but like, that's not my heart. That's not my calling. Y'all, that was me 17 years ago. That was me sitting at, at, at my dining room table and, and being convinced and convicted that there was nothing for me to do in this area except to just sort of pay a tip and, and, and kind of give a little bit of attention. The reality is that all of us have been called in meaningful ways to give our, our best in order to be able to, to put the gospel on display in the way that we care for widows and orphans. And here's the thing, and I'm not going to take you there because it would take too much time, and I'm almost out of time already. Some of you went, amen. <laughs> but, but, but if you go, go to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and read the story of Moses coming back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and talking to the children of Israel, kind of giving them, and wh what he's doing in Deuteronomy chapter 10 is he's giving them an overview of their history. And he's kind of saying, blow by blow, here are all the things that have happened that, that, that God brought you, that, that he made you not a people to being a people, that he's, that he's walked with you, that he's provided for you, that he's taken you out of captivity, that he's, he's done all of these things for you. And he reminds them and he says, remember that one time, at one time you were sojourners, you were people that were out there wandering and you did not have a God and you did not have a destination and you did not have a promised land and you did not have anything. And I gave you a name and I gave you an identity and I gave you ultimately a father, me, and so because you were those sojourners, here's what you're supposed to do. 
Seek justice for widows. Seek justice for orphans. Seek justice for the people that are among you that have no rights and have no voice because, because they don't have legal standing in your community. Seek justice for those people, and the reason you do it is because you once were those people. Hey, church, that's us. Because in a much greater sense than even what they could understand when Moses was saying that to the children of Israel, you and I live on the other side of the cross, and we can see clearly what they couldn't see completely. That ultimately, we were those people. We were those people who were God's enemy, who were estranged from him because of our own sin. We were cut off. And that God valued us. God valued relationship. He valued his creation, but ultimately, he valued his own glory, and he, he valued his own holiness enough to send his son to die so that you and I might be able to have life, but ultimately so that you and I might be able to be adopted into the family of God to be the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Whoa. And so what we have the opportunity to do when we stretch ourselves into our community and when we all do the things that we can do in order to minister to children who have, have been deprived of parents or, or, or are in situations that are vulnerable, when we as believers step into that place, we give the world a word picture or, or a, a visual picture of what, what's happened to us spiritually and transformatively. And ultimately, it gives us the ability then to be able to give voice to that. Here's, here's kind of my favorite illustration for the way that I think about that. I have sons who are 20 and 19. There was a point, like we're kind of still there, but they're sort of making money now, and so they're kind of paying some of their own bills, and so this has gotten better. There was a point a few years ago where I literally scoured our neighborhood covenant to see if it would be possible for me to have a cow. Because it just seemed like it was ridiculous that I was bringing a couple of gallons of milk two or three times a week into the house. And so I figured if we could tie old Bessie up around behind and the neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood didn't know, like maybe we could kind of get away with that. One time I actually caught my 20-year-old about five years ago standing in front of the refrigerator. This is not a preacher story. This really happened. He was eating butter. I'm like, son, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for something to eat. I said, yeah, but what are you doing? He goes, I'm hungry. And, and y'all, like, I didn't even say anything. I just kind of, you know, walked off. I sort of lost the will to live for a minute there. But, but one of the things our kids used to love to do in their teenage years is they used to love to go to Sam's on Saturday because their, their mom and I loved it too because they would leave us alone for a little while. We would go shop, and they would go cut laps around, like, the back of the store hitting up the sample carts. So it was like buffet time. Like, to the point that I've really accused my kids a few times of going and trying on clothes just so that they could, like, have a different outfit on when they passed by the sample cart, hoping that the lady didn't, uh, didn't recognize it. We, we all kind of laugh at that because we understand Sam's on Saturday, but here's the reality. The reality is that Sam's kind of gets something that we should understand. Why do they put samples out there? because they want us to buy the 50-pound bag of whatever it is that's going to go freezer burnt in our freezer. Ultimately, we do care for orphan and vulnerable children in our community. Why? Because we want to put a taste on the lips of the rest of the world of the coming kingdom of God. 
Because you and I have a story that ends knowing that Jesus is coming back at some point and that he is going to establish his kingdom and that all the brokenness that we're experiencing today, today will be completely eradicated. There will be a condition where there are no more orphans and there are no more widows and there are no more lines drawn between people and we're not fighting over stuff anymore. But until we get there, we are afforded the opportunity to care for the vulnerable and to, and to meet their needs in very tangible ways in order to be able to then turn around and look at the world and say, the reason we do this is because Jesus has done that so much more for us. And we have the opportunity to be able to put that transformation on display. The last thing that, that I want to show you here is over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this relates really directly to the Families Count program that we talked about uh, in the video. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has something to say to us, the old apostle, about what our responsibility is as ambassadors, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is not going to help us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks to us about this idea of the ministry of reconciliation. And he's just talked about really kind of the nature of the gospel and the, and the transforming power of the gospel. And he, and he says, you know, in verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. But he says in verse 18, All of this is from God through who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, us, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And so truly what we understand is that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That, and, and, and so when you look at a situation like what was talked about in this video where there are families that are in our community that are broken apart because of the fruit of sin, because, because we live in a world that is broken and busted apart and ruined because, because of sin because of the curse because of the fall that, that you and I live in the midst of that condition but we're ambassadors of another kingdom and we live to tell the message that the king has given us to tell which is that there is no hope apart from Jesus and so as a ministry a few years ago we really became convicted that we were spending a lot of time and we were spending a lot of energy in the foster care system raising up foster parents in order to provide safe and secure homes where, where children could be loved and discipled from within the church. And that's a good thing. And, and, and so what we were seeing is, is, is we were spending a ton of time focusing on the fact that children needed stable places to live and that they needed temporary care and that the church was the best place to raise up families to do that and that the church would do an exemplary job of then surrounding those families and helping them to parent well and helping them to, 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 to raise those children well while they're in temporary care or maybe if temporary care wasn't possible in reunification what wasn't the eventual end that, that they would provide adoptive homes for those children. But here's the thing that we became convicted about. That if we're really going to get into the crisis of foster care in our community, we have to begin to think on the other side of the equation. 
and that the system here in America in the foster care system is slanted and built so that children have every opportunity to be able to be reunified with their birth parents. And, and so the system works over and over and over in order to be able to do things and provide good things and create conditions so that children can go home and stay home when they've been separated in foster care. We became convicted that as the church and as ministries like us that come alongside the church, we weren't doing a very good job of helping to make sure that the gospel was, was going into the lives of those parents who were seeking reconciliation with their children. And so that's where Families Count was born. And what we found was that there was a soft spot in the system that was created because of this opportunity for parenting classes. And so we started to ask people at the state and county level, why do these parenting programs, why do these education programs fail? And as they started to list the major reasons that those programs fail, what we began to see was a pattern that the things that made those programs fail when they were being run by the state are things that the church does exceptionally well. And so Families Count was born to take a biblical basis, to take the gospel at the center of what we do, to be able to teach parents how to parent. But we also come alongside them because there are mentors raised up within the church who will walk with those parents and help them understand how to walk out those things that they're learning how to do. It, we, we also provide the opportunity for the church to show biblical hospitality to those families. So one of the, one of the failure points of Families Count, or, or, or of other programs that Families Count seems or, or purposes to try to combat is the fact that, that most of the parenting programs that are in, in existence ask parents to, to come 12 or 13 weeks in a row without interruption in order to receive their training. Now, I don't know about y'all, I don't particularly consider my family to be at risk, but we couldn't be anywhere 13 weeks in a row. And so ultimately what we're doing over and over and over is setting up at-risk families to fail. And so Families Counts delivered in six weeks in, in kind of a, a more intense kind of setting. But that requires that people come and, and they have to stay for a while. And so the church gets the opportunity to do some things like to help with transportation, to provide a meal, to, to provide child care so that families who are not yet... Um, separated from their children, that, that they have a healthy place to be able to leave their kids where the church is loving on and taking care of those children. And what we have seen is nothing short of remarkable. And y'all, I'm convinced the reason that it works is not because there's some super magic formula in the curriculum, as I said on the video. It's not because, it's not because we've found the secret in something outside of Jesus. It's because we've taken the secret that we've always had, which is Jesus, and we're applying him in this situation. And so I just want to tell you, first of all, I want to commend you because this church is known for the ways that you care for vulnerable people in your community. You're known as a lighthouse for the gospel that's not hiding in the midst of the community, but that you're out there doing incredible work. You're known by doing things like what you're going to do today as you take these baskets to these foster families and help them know that they're loved and appreciated and, and, and that you want to care for them in Jesus' name. You are known for those things. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Keep going. Keep pressing in. 
For those of you that are, that are sitting here this morning and you're saying, like, it's never occurred to me how to get involved in, in this part of the ministry of First City Church, let it occur to you and begin to pray, how can God use what he's given me in resources, in talent, ability, and opportunity in order to be able to do something for orphan and vulnerable children? There are kids that are graduating out of the foster care system in this community that are graduating that do not have the skills to live life independently. You could take maybe what you've done in business or where you've been in your life or, or the things that God's trusted to you and use those things to mentor one of those children. You can be a wraparound resource for a foster family. You can plug into Families Count. There's something everybody can do. And I'm telling you, when we do that, and we do it unashamedly in Jesus' name, and we use the opportunities to point back to the truth of the gospel that are created through love in our community that way, God will transform Pensacola in greater and greater ways because of your faithfulness. I love you guys. I thank you. I know I'm a little bit over time, so I beg your indulgence. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue. Father.